I thought you already started. Just okay. I'm joined um, by uh, Atanas Nikolov uh, from Bulgaria. I'm trying not to uh, mispronounce that name. <clears throat> um, <laughs> all right, there you go. You know, that's that's my my speech therapist training kicking in there. Um, but um, uh, this is somebody whom I wanted to speak to ever since I saw him talk to a mutual friend of ours named Wayne. Um, it, th there was too much for me to even respond to in that initial conversation. Um, uh, so I just, I just, uh, you know, saved all my words for the the, the email that I would send uh, inviting uh, Atanas uh, to, to, to talk to me. Um, you know, as, as soon as possible. Um, so here he is. And Atanas, do you want to just say anything about yourself? Um, you can give as much or as little in the way of introduction as you as you want. Well, um, what can I say? To keep this brief, because, yeah, I can probably uh, go for, for a while. But to keep this brief, uh, I'm from Bulgaria, currently 27 years old, uh, with... A lot of interest in theology and all things theology like God and philosophy also maybe even more so um, I have been raised in a Christian family but uh, throughout the years I can say that my faith has been quite severely transformed uh, from where it started which I believe is a good thing because yeah if you i think if you keep your childhood's faith fairly intact you're probably doing something wrong because uh it needs it needs evolution and uh, it needs reflection it needs to get more complex and deeper with with um with life like we need to move on from milk into some solid food right right uh, like we read in the bible so that's the very brief gist of it. Um, what else can I say? Well, I think that's enough for most people. Like my background isn't, well, it can be interesting for some, but then we have to dig into more detail. So let's see how it goes from here. I think that's enough for now, at least. What I recall from your discussion with Wayne, and I'm sorry if this is off topic, but I'm wondering if we can do the thing where it switches dynamically between speakers um, rather than just the split screen, um, unless you prefer the split screen. Um, no, it can. It can. I don't think. I mean, it's probably on your side. Yeah, and I don't. I don't unfortunately know how to. I think uh, it's it's in the upper corner. There is view, upper right corner of the app just a moment that may be yeah. it in Jipper, so is it going to be speaker the there you go yeah okay excellent so um and we're still recording aren't we <laughs> yeah we are yeah. okay so what, what i recall uh uh from your conversation with wayne is that you were raised uh, unusually for a bulgarian um protestant rather than say yes. eastern orthodox yeah. And then at some point, well, I, I, I think it sounds like you became some kind of skeptic materialist. Um, and then you well, re-entered. The I wouldn't call myself, I wouldn't have ever called myself a materialist, but I, I have had this 
heavy skeptic inclination from the get-go, I would say. And yes, I was raised a Protestant, even more so, more charismatically leaning in a country which doesn't really do well with that kind of religion. And even more so, uh, here in Bulgaria, it is not really expected for you to be overtly religious like you would everybody would have icons in their home but like orthodox christians or eastern orthodox but it it is not really expected that you know much about religion or really think a lot about god so it would be weird for you to display any kind of interest and to talk about it in even in everyday conversations so even when i was younger i thought that these might as well be the most important conversations we might have. So I tried to engage people. And from an early age, I felt like a bit, a bit like an outcast in that regard. And with, with time passing, I got more and more skeptical about my faith. I wouldn't say that I ever went into completely like atheistic or materialistic kind of thinking, but I was definitely, well, science started to chip away at my faith for a while, at least from, if you look at it from a more superficial perspective, a lot of, a lot of the Protestant circles in Bulgaria, they're very younger creationist leaning. So when I, when I decided that I cannot really deny the science and say well you know i prefer to deny the science i realized that um this actually chips away at a lot of other things too because if if i accept the science about the earth being quite old and universe even older and perhaps even evolution though that was at a later stage in my development um what what else should i at least try to I don't know, look differently about the Bible. And from then on, I started to well, basically review my faith and review what I believe and if it actually stands up to scrutiny and if it is, if it cannot survive the attack of science, then perhaps it's not worth believing in. But if um, we believe in a God that is much more, powerful and greater than we ever might even conceive, then it is worth at least exploring whether or not science and religion can go hand in hand, maybe one informing the other and vice versa. And with time, I figured or I found out that not only does science pretty much, in my opinion at least, confirm religion, it helps us see Christianity in a much more in a much deeper light without without science and without a historical method and without even without physics and biology and everything else I would say that my my faith would be a lot I don't know poorer a, a lot less rich and, and vibrant which uh, through science has actually, it has improved, in my opinion, honestly. 
and and I later figured out that actually um, the things about religion that um, like the earth, the young earth creationist stuff and the very fundamentalist, uh, literalist approach to the Bible, it actually kind of destroys Christianity in my opinion and, and spirituality to a huge degree. And I, I actually started noticing that the more I appreciate the science and the world that God has created, the more I see faith as a fundamental part of reality rather than uh, like science destroying faith in any tangible way. I, I, I think it's even the other way around. It strengthens my faith because if we, if we understand the world for what it is through science, then we, we then have to realize that God has created not a painting that needs fixing, but the world that is living and creating on its own. And he has created little creators. Like, for example, I have this conception in my mind that every good fictional character actually exists. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure, take, for example, Tolkien. I'm a fan of Tolkien. His characters are so real to me that, in a sense, I think that God would honor Tolkien's creation by making his characters basically existing in some shape or form. And, uh, and that's because that's how God creates the universe. He creates us and we create stuff. And I don't think that it is too dissimilar to think that the world that we create the, the worlds that we create in our minds even are well i don't think they're too distinct from our own in terms of even ontology if you think about it because we as people we are i don't know you're probably familiar with jonathan pajot uh but he has this idea that god is is the pinnacle of, of reality and everything stems from him. Like he is the top of the mountain and everything flows from that. So every little particle, so to speak, down the hierarchy, it, it spreads itself even farther and farther and, and everything then resembles that initial spark, which is God, like that initial pattern and everything tries to display it. So in our own creating of the world, like different fictional worlds even we're actually just displaying a given pattern and we enjoy the stories that actually correspond the best to the pattern that is god so to speak so in that sense um when i when i started exploring christianity not from just a material lens like from the fundamentalist uh, literalist lens because that is really a material lens in my opinion when i started exploring it from a from the perspective of actually everything in the world cohering and making sense, not uh, like contradicting one another, like in not, not science versus religion, but science just exploring the world and the, the mechanics behind the world and religion then exploring the, the purpose and meaning behind the world. I then realized that this is a discussion that doesn't even need to happen. Like one doesn't contradict the other in any meaningful way. So, yeah, I don't know where I started. I mean, 
my train of thought probably again went into a tangent but excuse me i remember first i want to say that i was really struck by what you said about god perhaps honoring the you know the the, the realistic and god honoring uh creations of his if you will co-creators his sons not 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 equal with god but 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 his children who are as in his image and who like god create their own worlds you know i have dared to imagine that that god loves not only every human being in a unique way such that each human being is irreplaceable to god but that the same goes for every numerically distinct creature you know, even even the ones we really don't like, a cockroach. Mm. God oh, is yeah. love. And I've also dared to imagine that every conceivable being is loved by God because God is love. And I've, you know, imagined that that, you know, even if um, a, a zygote um, does not have, you know, what we would think of as human consciousness, still even the destruction of a zygote is not is not a decision that is honored by God. In the sense that God will take that thought and that creature who was to be and bring it into being. It never crossed my mind uh, that, that God might even do that with fictional characters. But, but I, that, there, I feel a truth in what you said, or you know, at least a possibility. Um, and and that is, that's, that's, a, that's a really, um, to me, that's a mark of a really original theological imagination. Although maybe, you know, like, like many other, you know, potential true or potentially true things, you're not the first person to have said it. Um, I don't know. Uh, but where we were was I was, I was asking if you had sort of ventured into, um, you know, skepticism, and I called it materialism. And you said, well, it wasn't quite materialism. But then you tried to explain, you know, the context where I was, was, uh, Protestant, like evangelical Bulgarians, were very much on the young earth creationist side. But yes. you found that science kind of, um, you know, amplified your understanding of who God is, and 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 also that 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 in the realm of literature, that also, you know, shed light on on who God is. And 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 are you able to speak about you like your further um, transformations or steps in your journey? Well, with, with science, basically, um, my, my skepticism at first grew because on the one hand, I wasn't an Orthodox Christian, at least not Eastern Orthodox, so I couldn't really go there for my spiritual journey, so to speak. Like we, from, from a very young age, the, Although my, my father and mother did never really talked ill about Eastern Orthodox people, the church as a whole did. Like we were very like brought up like the Orthodox Church isn't really okay. And politically speaking, practically speaking, in Bulgaria it really isn't because it's tied to, to the mafia and it's it's a mess. Um, but even so, I like being a Protestant, I couldn't go there for my spiritual journey then my venture into science started to chip away at my young earth paradigm so i was slowly drifting away from my community at, ch at church 
And I started to realize that I'm neither an Eastern Orthodox, neither nor like fundamentalist Protestant, though I would never call myself a fundamentalist anyway, but because we didn't have that terminology here, you were either a Protestant or you weren't. So I didn't have any middle categories. For, and for a while, I always consider myself to be just a contrarian to like everything. It was even my <laughs> kind of my brand to be literally a hater, so to speak. Like I, that, that was even kind of my nickname in, in high school because I was contrarian to everything. That was my kind of thing. Like I, I did my own stuff and I explored my own, uh, I don't know, ideas. And for a while, I figured that um, while religion might be important, science is probably more so. But at some point it hit me that that isn't really the case because while science explores the, the world that we inhabit, at some point everything ends and this is kind of a long story but i am somewhat on on the low empathy side of the psych psyche i mean i i'm pretty sure that in my early age i had some hormonal issues and that led probably to some neurotransmitter disbalances in my head which led to kind of psychopathic thinking so i'm really low on the empathy side of things and for a while i had this rampant egotism in myself like severe selfishness but i figured that if everything ends and i don't have this thing about life sorted out it would kind of be everything else would be pointless so whatever I do in life, it wouldn't matter because I would be dead one day. I couldn't care less about how they bury me or what they say on the on my gravestone or whatever. Like that they were, there were books which said that you should really think about what other people would say like for your eulogy or something and that would should motivate you. And I was like, I couldn't even care less, you know? I couldn't care less because I would be dead and I wouldn't care what others would think of me. But what I would care is if there is an afterlife and if it matters and if our life here matters for the afterlife, then I should probably explore that and do more, like think more about that. So with, with time starting at the age of 16, I would say, I started to delving deeper and deeper into, into theology, not just the scientific stuff, like not just exploring older creationism versus younger creationism and then evolution but all kinds of theological issues like predetermination calvinism versus arminianism and all these sorts of things and slowly i started to realize that the most important thing about me was how how my conception of god is developing I wouldn't even say my relationship with God because at that point I was very, again, very skeptically inclined and God for me was more of an intellectual pursuit. It wasn't until the age of 20 or 21 when I had some, I would say a transformative experience where 
I had a spiritual experience. I would call it that. And but even so, fine. Oh, go ahead. Oh no, I I I want to say that even for the five years prior to that, or the four years prior to that, even my intellectual inclinations, my intellectual pursuit, even then, it only made sense to me that the most important question would be God and what to do about him, you know, or how to how to relate to him. I wanted to say something in connection with you. You're drawing a distinction between conceiving of God and relating to God. And, you know, it takes me back to what you were talking about uh, in terms of the relationship between religion and science um, and, and how, you know, they're not, they're not incompatible. And it makes me think of something that David Bentley Hart essentially said, Oh, in one of his books, I think it was called The Atheist Delusion or something yeah, like yeah. that. Atheist Delusions or something. Yeah, yeah Atheist yeah. Delusions. And um, it was the idea that, that creatures evolve, you know, um, according, you know, to, to uh, uh, you know, natural selection or Darwinian evolution. Um, and and by, by pursuing, you know, certain goods, you know, that we just, you know, lumped together in the category of fitness. But in some sense, they're also like the goods of, you know, goodness, beauty, truth. But that these, these earthly goods, they, um, they ultimately, they lead beyond, um, you know, the, the space-time manifold. They, they converge um, uh, on a horizon that is like transcendental and, and beyond like the, the space-time manifold of evolution and physics. And, it, when you were talking about merely conceiving of God and it being an intellectual thing and relating to him, it made me think of uh, a sort of almost transcendental version of what happens in child development theory of mind, where first the child, um, you know, uh, they don't, the child doesn't have an understanding of, of the parent as a separate mind from himself. It's just, um, I mean, to the extent that the child can, you know, explicitly you know, conceive of the parent, it's almost like a vending machine. It's like, I just, you know, here's this input. It's like, I, I need this. So I perform an operation and I get this output. But then at some point, uh, you know, the child starts forming, you know, an internal understanding of the mind of, you know, uh, his or her parent. And that's like a next step in the child's evolution. And there, there's different, you know, you talked about your having sort of if you will, like, like an excess of testosterone and, and, and just being like very kind of unempathic and, 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 um, you know, ego, egotistic or egoistic in some sense. Um, and, you know, the children with autism, the, the development of a theory of mind happens later, if at all, but the point is, and that they may be very good conversely at systematizing and figuring out, uh, the properties of, of lawful systems, but nonetheless, eventually at some point, I think even for children, you know, this is me being speculative theology, but I think even for children who, who have profound autism all their life in this life, the, 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 the dawning of the relationship with the creator begins. It may happen sooner, it may happen later, but it always, it always happens. And it's just because it uh, just as a function of each creature who is loved by God, uh, 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 being sustained in existence by God um and uh you know endlessly pursuing 
uh, God in the form of, you know, goodness and beauty and truth, uh, you know, beyond the horizon of horizons. So, so uh, that, that's what I was thinking of when you, when you mentioned the difference between, well, God is just an intellectual thing. I systematize him. And maybe I even use my systematic knowledge to be called rabbi and get some place of honor at, at the table and get people to listen to me on my podcast, which, you know, by the way, guys, <laughs> subscribe to my podcast. Um, uh, you know, and then at some point you start realizing where something, something different, you know, begins to happen. So, yeah. Um, when I was reading Leo Tolstoy's A Confession, he has this very interesting observation, which I only got to later in life. Not that I'm very old, but let's say in the last couple of years. He has the observation that the people who know most about God, like intellectually speaking, are the ones who are farthest away from him. Because you, let's say it like this, people who actually have faith in God, like who display the most important qualities, they may not even have a proper conception of him, intellectually speaking, but they are living out their, their relationship with God. They, they live it out in the world. And, and Tolstoy says that the people closest to God are those who are, who, who might even be heretics when it comes to theology, even if they don't know they're heretics, they don't have a, they don't have proper conceptions of theological matters, but they their actions they reflect God much more than uh, any of the in, intellectually theologically inclined people upper higher in the hierarchy, right? And so so he would say that the most sincere faith he found was amongst the peasants in in Russia. And even though they were very, like, not, not intellectually robust, they were the most, like, satisfied in, in their relationship with God. And they would not even question it. And it came to my mind that I might have a relationship with my father, which is very formal, and I might understand him, and I might study the human brain and, and psychology and realize that yes my father has done this to me because of like his past trauma or not and he, or he might be a good father because well he was raised in a good family and whatnot and I might learn a ton of stuff about my, about my father but I would actually experientially know less of him from the people than the people who are in an actual relationship with him you know so they may not, they might not know that he is this and this kind of personality, or uh, that he displays these and these and those kinds of traits. And they might not know this, but in their experience of him, because of their relationship, they actually know him better than I do. Even if I can conceptualize him and put them in put him in a box and apply certain categories to him, and even analyze him psychologically speaking. I might do a lot of stuff and still not know him better than his closest friends, for example. Even well, if I they wanna, don't know. Yeah. I, I, I would like to riff on this and amplify this um, as well. So, you know, uh, 
if anyone's seen the movie Borat uh, uh, or uh, Bruno, uh, you know, with uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, he has a cousin named Simon Baron Cohen, who was influential in the understanding of autism as, as, as uh, you know, a condition of, in some ways, hyper-systematizing and low empathizing and, 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 you know, thus from that perspective, a kind of exaggeration of the typical or typically male cognitive profile, which seems on some level to prefer things to people, or at least to have more interest in things and systems than the female uh, psychology does very broadly speaking, there are exceptions and there's overlap. Um, and and um, here's the thing, why is it a division, a seemingly binary division only two options, like between systemizing and empathizing. Maybe there are more, you know, there are more uh, options here than just two. I think it really is just two. And the reason I think that is, it's the binary division between personal and impersonal. For, you know, an impersonal system, what you're gonna do is just log the regularities. When I perform this operation under these conditions, this is what occurred. And then under these slightly different conditions, I got some different output and so on and so forth. More complicated systems, you have to keep better track of the, the surrounding conditions. Well, imagine with a person, um, you know, trying to understand them from a purely statistical and systematic standpoint, you cannot, or trying to understand yourself in that way, so you cannot. So what you have to do is to understand a person, you have to first be able to understand yourself. But of course, the understanding of the self is always in some opposition to understanding of and others. So they're, they're actually kind of inextricably interwoven. Nevertheless, to understand you, Atanas, um, I have to be aware of how I would feel under certain conditions and then imagine um, uh, myself um, in your conditions and how I would feel, you know, you know if I were in your shoes. And that's much better than just trying to like, oh, when I'm... Uh, uh, the temperature is 70 degrees, Atanas blinks at a rate of 30 eye blinks per, you know, <laughs> you know that will never work, right? And, and, and also this, that, that um, God, you know, a person, I'm going to echo my friend Nate Heil here. Um, a person is not reducible to some static set of propositions. There's something about the structure of personhood itself that is infinite and, 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 and that, it can never be reduced to just some static set of propositions. There's always potentially more. And there's always more that a person does become such that they're fundamentally a moving target. That's why we know Jesus, like the person rather than some static set of commandments or you know, some static book. And, and it, it, it has to be likewise um, with, with God. I mean, yep. you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying Jesus is a God <laughs> in case it sounded like that. <laughs> uh, well, it's, th there is this, um, I think it's a philosophical experiment about, well, thought experiment about a person who learns everything about the color red, but never experiencing it. Even if you know everything about it, there, there seems to be something more to learn through experience that you cannot simply get by just ingesting all sorts of information about the color red. Like 
there is a phenomenological aspect to reality. And I think that this applies much more so to relationships. So although my I could be more, I could be better informed. Let's let's take the example with let's say my father again. I I would know my father better if I have a relationship with him, and then I have wider psychological conceptions and I understand psychological theory, and then I can frame his actions. But I would also know know him from experience, and then I could have a clearer picture. But sadly, like what we prefer to do, I think, is to go into one of the extremes, like either be completely impersonal or be completely like completely ditch theory and go for the experience. And although I think the experiential extreme is better in terms of living out uh, and helping other people, I, I also think that ditching the theoretical side the analytical side is also to a detriment because well think of it like this if i can know more about the greatest being in the universe namely god if i can know more about him and i really love him i would think it would serve me better if i also get the analytical side of things at least consider it you know the the, the commandment is to know god with all your heart soul and mind yeah yeah exactly and although it is very easy to go into the extreme of completely stripping away anything mystical about god and just trying to put him in a box it is also like there is the tension to go the other way and say that we can never really say anything about god we can go go completely apophatic and then um just try to well basically we as a group decohere because everybody has a slightly different experience of god and if everybody is trying to say that their experience is the most valid because really you can only test your own experience then we have vastly different conceptions of god when when we get different iterations or even just yeah I, i also believe that i also believe that our experience of god is not simply unique in terms of we are unique people but we carry on conceptions of god from the outside from how we were raised or how it was present how god was presented to us so we already approach god through a different lens you know we don't approach him with a blank slate we don't just try to experience him without any conception of god we already approach him with some preconceived notions of him so we build on our idea of God, maybe through experience, and then we we basically we push that forward to other people, and they build on that. And in time, we get we would have gotten vastly different conceptions of God if there wasn't some sort of a some effort to systemize stuff, some effort to say, well, you know, yes, you can experience God in a certain way. But let's not go all the way to heretical thinking. So let's define some category, some categories where we can speak about God in certain terms. So we don't really stray farther away from that because here is the thing. If God is really the greatest thing in the universe and he is the pattern of all patterns, so to speak, 
then in a in a sense the in order for 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 us to display god properly in the world to enact what what he wants out from us of us we need to at least to have some semblance of truth in our conceptions and if we only rely on our experience this is very easy to corrupt even if we don't talk about demons and we don't talk about any kind of um, like bad spiritual beings so to speak even if we just think about our own conceptions it is very hard to to squash your ego and and not let and not let at least and not let your brain try to shape god in some way so you can uh, accept him better so to speak or just so, so there there ahead. is a way of trashing the ego and and propositional knowledge that is also false so the thing about the ego and the propositional is that it's not false it's just not it's just not the whole truth but they're parts of the truth and and then in other words you know god is the logos and the propositional and logical you know that's a dimension of reality and and if you go too far away from that you have a self-refuting uh, or internally incoherent understanding of god sort of like the Tao that can be named as not the Tao. i'm not even talking about god anymore you know per my own uh extremely negative definition of of who and what god supposedly is um but i was going to say um you talked about each person having a different conception of god and that that made me think of how um uh but you know maybe in some sense each person's somewhat different conception of god is is necessary um for the full understanding of who god is like each person being um a unique facet of god's glory something that god had to say about himself that he could not say without creating that person you know just as you and i we understand ourselves through the mirror of like everyone else i think god's creation is the mirror through which he understands himself i i would say that it is i i would almost say necessary that everybody has a slightly different conception of god and it is my belief that ultimately we will all share our conceptions in an experiential way so not just me telling telling you about my experience but you actually experiencing what i have experienced and that would enrich us but what what i wanted to say was that take take for example how spirituality has developed in the modern world in the western world now it, it's like a a buffet of stuff that you just pick up and and you try to create your own religion that tries to make you feel good and you just discard everything that makes you in the least bit uncomfortable and in in a sense we all get back to the problem of using god as a vending machine and something to satisfy our desires in a more base way than the other way around like we are we stop trying to to image god and we make god image us like that's that's what what is happening if we just discard the analytical and theoretical and theological so to speak if we just focus on the experiential and i know that many people even in my in in the evangelical circles here in bulgaria they would 
they would emphasize the spiritual aspect a lot. But whenever I bring up some sort of contradiction, which you often get into if you just focus on the experiential, whenever I do that, they would feel very uncomfortable, not, not about the, the contradiction itself, but they would feel uncomfortable about even, even trying to discuss God in a more analytical sort of way, as if you were diminishing him if, if you try to, to, to talk too philosophically about him. Because I use a lot of philosophy. I, I don't even go to scripture all that often when I bring up contradictions because they're philosophical in nature. But, but then many people feel like you're trying to put God underneath the foot of logic. And I don't see it like that. But many people feel like that's, that's how you, that's what you do when you try to define God in some way, shape or form. So they neglect the, the analytical, theoretical sort of stuff and they focus on the experiential sort of stuff. But then we branch into all kinds of chaos. And, no, and I realize that it is very valuable for each and every one of us to realize that we could never be perfect in our conceptions, at least when we try to explain God. Maybe we are a bit closer when we experience him. I mean, closer to perfection. But on this side of life, on this side of death, we, are un- we won't be able to take our experience, let's say even of the coward red, I can't take my experience of the cow red and give it to you. And you can't take your experience of the cow red and give it to me. So we have to at least rely on some sort of shared understanding, which there, there isn't a way to not make it analytical because our experience is strictly like an N equals one experience. Like we, we, we cannot, we cannot um, transfer the experience, sadly, on this side of death. And I think that this is valuable because then this, uh, this allows us to experience God in a truly unique way. And maybe, like you have said, this is, this is uh, a way for God to express himself. And this is clearly valuable, but then we also need to realize that we are also fallible. So maybe our experience of God is sometimes not exactly, like not, not everything about our experience of God is a true experience of God, so to speak. It might be covered by our interpretive lens. So let's say God tells me something and I say, well, God spoke to me and told me to do that. But maybe God didn't really tell me to do that, but told me to pay attention that in this thing, I might stumble. So not to do it, but to be more careful about, you know? So our experience of God is not, is not pure in the sense that we just experience him, but we also have to interpret that experience. And in that interpretation, we are prone to error. So what I'm trying to say is that ultimately we 
well, as a person, as, a, as somebody who has been on the far extreme of intellectualism, I realized how important experience is. And now I also realize that it is also very, very important to talk about the analytical stuff. And it is not something that should be easily discarded. And actually, if you ask me right now, people have harder time with the analytical and philosophical side of religion than they do with the experiential side of the religion. And I think that's, that's where we need, we, we kind of need to build a bridge between the two because people are falling into extremes. And uh, currently, at least, that's how I see it. Most people see the intellectual side of the religion as something that isn't necessary. And the experiential side of religion or spirituality as something that is the goal in and of itself, like the mystical experience is the goal, which I would say that it, it is good to want to experience God, but pursuing the mystical experience for its own sake is like missing the point, I would say. Like you're making it an idol in and of itself. You know, like the, the very experience, the mystical, the one that you you cannot really fathom, that becomes your own goal. And then you, you again miss the point of knowing God and experiencing God the way he wants to be experienced. Now you're trying to experience God the way you want to experience him. And I, I know this because I've, I've been there. I went from one extreme to the other. Like I, I stopped caring about my conception, intellectually speaking, and I wanted to experience God in a mystical way so that I could be completely certain and completely sure in not only his existence, but in, in his existence in the way that I understand it. And then that, become, that became my, well, my idol, my stumbling block, because then God wasn't a person who I would want to have a relationship with, but the person who I would want to just use for my own satisfaction which again is a problem because if I want to truly know you for who you are, then I should al allow you to, to relate to me in the way that you want to relate to me and not to force you into a relation that I want you to have towards me, you know? And I know that God is loving and I understand that. And I understand that, mm, well, let's say that here being loving would relate to people in a, fatherly sort of way like he is described in the bible and like how we see jesus but in the same way i understand that there is something about him being a father to us that he knows that not each and every one of us needs a strictly mystical experience you know if 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 we are prone to making if we are prone to extremes then maybe the, the lesson is that we might never get a mystical experience if that is, if that is our only goal. Because at, at some point I was even considering psychedelics just to, you know, get into that area. And I realized that this is where, where I went wrong with the whole thing. This is where I put the, put the, the experience itself on a higher level than God, than actually knowing God. And if and I might, I, 
Yeah. Oh, if I might, before before we um, uh, uh, stray too far away from something you said earlier, I'd like to just amplify it because um, I, I, I made some remarks that I wanted to say in connection with what you said about how the, the analytical or propositional approach to God um, is in danger of being uh, pulled too far apart from the kind of experiential and mystical uh, approach to God. Because, you know, like ultimately, when we're talking about God, we're talking about ultimate reality. And for me, you know, I, I think that God is a consciousness in whom we live and move and have our being. There is a level of reality on which consciousness, that consciousness is identified with its creation, because on one level, it's like it regards its contents. On another level, it is its contents. And, and so, you know, when we're talking about ultimate reality, we need like a kind of consistent, closed surface over which is like everything needs to be unified. It's like a globe is like a unified closed surface over which infinite or endless travel is possible. Ultimate reality and the structure of consciousness, like, like it needs to has, have this property and there can't be any um, unbridgeable absolute discontinuities anywhere. Um, it, it has to be like um, perfectly consistent and closed and unified. I'm borrowing a lot of ideas here from uh, Chris Lang, an, Amer an American uh, philosopher. But so, so for me, I don't think logic ever breaks. Um, and some people would say that makes God subject to logic. But on some level, you know, God is the logos. Logos that means God is logic. In some yeah, sense. yeah. I, I but here's the God trick. Logic, yeah. But here's the trick to speak of logic: the limited, the defined. You you always have to make reference to contradiction or the unlimited and the undefined. Logic is the art of reasoning while avoiding what contradiction. Without contradiction, you can't even make sense of logic. So that's where the Trinity comes in. Like God has the unlimited or unmanifest aspect. God is truly infinite. So it's like he's both infinite and finite. Um, he has the unlimited and, and unmanifest aspect. Maybe you might say the father. And then he has the limited and manifest aspect of creation, the son. And then there's the relationship in between or, you know, between the infinite and the finite the father and the son. Um, so like that's kind of like sort of my working understanding of the Trinity, too. But I would just very much echo what you said. Let's not just trash and poo-poo the propositional. Its excesses are problematic. But then again, as you were saying very articulately, the excesses of the um, uh, you know, experiential my mystical personal, um, charismatic, you know, I command some angels to give me a Dr. Pepper right now, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, you know, that, that, that is a little bit too close for comfort with, um, uh, with uh, the law of attraction. It's sort of new age manifesting. Um, you know, uh, stuff. Uh, if you don't mind, I would like to take a quick break here. Just pause the recording briefly if you're okay with that. I'm okay. Yeah, no okay, just a moment. All right. So, um, yeah, where I cut you off, and unfortunately, it's it's been a little bit of a wait since, but where I cut you off was, you were just talking about how you feel there. You know, it's, it's almost like in the Odyssey, it's like there's Scylla or Scylla, however you say it, and Charybdis. It's like there's a rock and a hard place, basically, something you got to sail between, right? You don't want to lean too propositional or analytic, and you don't want to be too mystical and experiential, like at the exclusion of, you know, you don't want to do one to the exclusion of the other kind yes, of thing. Yes, exactly. That's, um, well, I wouldn't say that you can be too one or the other, but that if you progress, you should progress in both. Not, not just 
neglect one side of it because most people they do that they they pick a side and they i i know people who really like to talk about theology and let the, let's take christian universalism for example if i talk to them about christian universalism and i try to explain that most of their theological conceptions which do away with any sort of universalism if i try to pick them apart and point out that they are not coherent even philosophically speaking they would go to all kinds of mental gymnastics in order to make make uh, their conceptions out sound at least coherent to them at least but then i point out that if you if you look at the experiential side of things like in my conversation with wayne i i thought i told him that i can't even i can't even stand an hour of pain you know you can't even imagine experiencing that yesterday i went on a hike and at some point it was a very difficult hike and i realized that if i have to do this every single day without ceasing and this was my punishment it would be unbearable like i can't even imagine that and this isn't very it's not a bad punishment you know any any sufficiently severe pain phenomenologically feels endless we can understand eternal as at least on one level or sense referring to the quality of the pain that is experienced there such that even a moment of it feels like it's so unbearable that it, it's never going to end yeah and th- this is this is where when talking to people who are on the very analytical theological side of stuff where i try to bring in just the, the experiential conception not even the experience itself just trying to view the things not only through the analytical side of stuff but also through the experiential side of things to to imagine what it would be like and would a great loving god do this and for what purpose well then i see how such people they they almost have to completely disregard the experiential side of stuff because they can handle it if they start to integrate it well let's say it like this i don't know many people who both go for the theological analytical intellectual side of faith and the mystical experiential side of faith i don't know many people who have done that and remained like believers in eternal conscious torment or at least they have at least tried to think about universalism like they are at least hopeful universalists because when you marry the two i don't know how you can arrive at a different conclusion i know that this currently isn't that conversation like we aren't currently discussing universalism but it can it be gets, <laughs> it, it, i i get back to this because for me at least and for the people i know when you start to marry the two sides the experiential and the theoretical this is where you end up and yesterday no today actually i was listening to uh the latest jonathan pejot q and a and they asked him about what does he think about universalism he basically 
said that you have to see it like you you can't escape the universalist picture but in tradition for some reason there is a need to also juxtapose it with the eternal torment picture and he said that because of tradition he can't really call himself a universalist even though he leans heavily that way well think about it if you're trying to warn people of a pain that is so severe that even a moment of it feels you know like it will never end the the warning has to be issued with some force because the tendency of people is going to be um, if you say it's temporary and corrective, oh, I can breeze through that, no problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is that the truth remains that 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 hell is by definition the worst thing you can experience, and that it must be avoided at all costs. It is infinitely worse than death. Um, it, it, like you have no idea how much you can suffer there. It's 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 beyond it's beyond imagining. Um, and and so one wants to issue a stark warning. Um, but, you know, I think if read properly, the New Testament kind of, you do kind of get the sense of like an unstoppable force and an immovable object. Um, you know, you've got a judgment, which, which is, which is, you know, uh, you know, as, as severe as words can make it be. And you've also got to love a God who is love, you know, that, that, is, that is deeper and vaster than the mind can ever compass. And then you have to just take this this aporia and draw your own conclusions in some sense. I, I do I do think that. Yeah. Um, but then the question is, how do you read the Bible? Is is it by the letter, um, or is it that the letter kills, and and the, and the Spirit gives life, as Wayne says? And and we simply took that message and killed it in in a new way and insisted on reading only the letter. Do we need to rediscover a kind of spiritual sight, the spiritual hermeneutic, which Jesus and Paul seem pretty clearly to have been using? They don't seem to have been reading it like Pharisees, you know, by the letter, with the accepted uh, sort of uh, consensual uh, uh, understanding. This is what the text means, this is what the authors meant, etc. So, you know, that's that's really what I would point to when it comes to scripture. It's like, let's just focus on the right understanding of scripture. Um, because you're talking about people who, you know, if you're both experience, if you're both, uh, let's say, analytical and experiential, then, you know, that's going to form your approach to scripture. The, the book of Revelation, I think of a lot when I think of like its portrayal of a final division between uh, saved and sinners. And, and in particular, a book of life uh, in which some names are written and some are not. And the point seems to be that not every, you know, there's a book because because it's not like every name is in the book. Some are in, some are out. You got to check the book to see which is which. And there's never any mention of names being added to the book of life. When I seem to read the Bible with my spiritual glasses, though, I look at the parable of the prodigal son. Um, and, um, you know, you could almost like give all the arguments I made for the book of life being limited. You could almost just like nap them one to one onto the words of the older son. But dad, I always did everything you said. Like you can't just accept them back in because because otherwise, you know, what, what, what are you going to do about me? Like you never even killed a goat for me, et cetera. But he said, no, but I have to do this. I have to kill the fatted calf for him, even though he squandered everything because this my son was dead and now he is alive. Sounds to me like a name got added in the book of life right there. But doesn't it ever say in a verse, look, go scripture, let scripture interpret scripture doesn't mean there's a verse 
in, in, in hermeneutics 316 that says, yeah. oh, by the way, when you're interpreting the parable of the prodigal son, look at it, like, look at it, take it to Revelation and, you know. <laughs> I, I usually say that it really depends from where you start. Do you start with God when you talk about the gospel or do you start with punishment? And to me, it seems like for the majority of, well, let's say like for the, five, for the last perhaps, 50, perhaps 15 centuries, we have heavily em emphasized the hell as a starting place. And I don't think that's correct. And I don't think that's useful. And I think that it might have been for a while, but now it gets less and less useful because, well, people start to realize that, first of all, if God is love, we, like, you can't imagine love being something that would just delight in punishment. That's the first thing but then many people start to think that love would never ever ever go to punishment like it would be today we talk about how we should never even punish our kids which i don't think is correct because punishment isn't simply you being cruel it is punishment well let's say it like this sin is its own punishment it's actually the the punishment that you receive is a natural consequence of sin. If we define sin as something that is opposite of God, so opposite of life. So the punishment that you receive is entirely the expected outcome of, like if you fall from a tree, you're gonna hurt yourself because that's how gravity works. It's not like gravity is punishing you, it's how the world works. And this is, this is where I come to, uh, the, the same parable about the prodigal son. If you think about it, the prodigal son went to hell and he suffered there and he had to go to, to, go to the, let's say the worst place imaginable. He had to discard his pride. He had to discard his even his conceptions of what a good life is. Like he, he had a much better life at home and then he, he figured that a better life would be even as a servant to his father. So he had to discard his conceptions of a good life. But think about this, even when he went back, he went back with an idea that he would tell this and that to his father, like he have a speech prepared and so, so on. So he, in a sense, can win heaven for himself. But this was again his mind being kind of legalistic about it because you know if you repent you get some kind of compensation for your repentance you know but god then comes much more merciful than even expected welcomes him back meets him not simply halfway there he, he meets him the majority of the way there because he restores him to his former glory you know to, to the son's former glory maybe even more so because now the the son has been to hell and back being dead and now being brought back to life basically i want to draw and, in some universalist yeah. wisdom 
to, to make, to amplify what you were saying about like the punishments of God. You know, first we have David Bentley Hart coming very much from the classical theist uh, metaphysics and saying that God is the good and every rational nature is oriented to the good. And from that, we kind of understand with the prodigal son, he goes as far away from the father as it is possible to go. And yet, um, because God is the good and rational natures are just, just fundamentally like transcendentally oriented to that, every moral trajectory bends inescapably back toward God, however far it initially deviates. Um, and it's sort of like, you know, objects circling a planet with a sufficiently strong gravitational field, just to use a, you know, modern day scientific image. Um, and, and, you know, McDonald talks about how the, the mercy and the justice of God are not opposed. The justice is altogether merciful. The mercy is altogether just. You know, if you think like George Saris in the, in the Doors of Heaven talked about how if his beloved son, who's a grown man, um, is, is swindling um, old women out of their pensions, be, precisely because he loves his son and cannot let his son suffer the, the spiritual consequences of that sin, he must punish him. But the punishment and the love are the same because what one is being saved from, you know, going to McDonald, is not the consequences of sin in the sense of the cops catching you, but, but, but sin itself in the sense of the exactly. corrosive effect that this has on the soul. Exactly. That's, that's my conception of it. That's, that's how I think about sin. And when I, most people, they bring up the objection that, well, God should punish you for your sin because no, you can't get away with it. And my reaction to that is always that you never get away with it because sin is its own punishment. Like, I don't envy the person who lives a sinful life, even if he may have everything in the world, you know, because because of his sin. And I'm, I have a friend of mine who is a Christian, and he basically says that he cannot accept a God who wouldn't punish criminals who live their life to the fullest because he actually envies them. He envies their life. And I, I, I've said to him that to me, their life seems like hell because every day they're worried about their lives because they know that you, you, you really can't live on that side of, of life, not fearing about your own life because everybody can kill you any moment because you're a target, basically. But not only that, but everything you have ever built, you have to realize you have done through unlawful means, meaning that when you, every, every day you can make the slight misstep and everything crumbles. And then you have nothing else. Your reputation is wrecked, basically. You cannot really build anything worthwhile. Your relationships with people are a wreck too, because you know yourself, you're a criminal, and you know that you are not really trustworthy, even if there is some honor among thieves. But even then, you're basically thieves. So you know that there is always backstabbing. So you don't really have rich relationships. You don't really have a rich experience of life in the sense that nobody is going to miss you when you're gone. You haven't really impacted the world in any meaningful way except for worrying about yourself and this and, and when i put it like this this is not the kind of life that i would want to lead even even if i do all this it's it's as if a child is playing in the sand building a castle yes and at the end of the day 
the castle just crumbles. So, uh, rain is. comes and and washes it. It is the away. house built on sand. It is that yes. exact. Yes, that's that's how I see a sinful life. I don't envy it because it ultimately you you don't build anything. You just you you deny yourself the experience of the the good, the true, and the beautiful. You 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 actually go the other way. You go towards the bad, the lies, and the ugly because that's the the kind of life you have chosen. The, the kind of life that is actually death. So I don't envy envy that kind of life because it's empty. And I have the privilege of knowing some mafia people who have turned away from their past lives. And I, I know such a person. Well, you may know not you you may not know this about Bulgaria, but he is very. The mafia pretty much runs the country and it has done so for the last 30 years or so, maybe even more. And I know people who have been on the very high end of the mafia, so to speak. And one of those people, he turned to, to God. He is an Eastern Orthodox person right now. I mean, a Christian. But every single day he lives in fear of death because he he cannot forgive himself for the things that he has done and his life although he himself says that he much prefers his life now than his life in the past and he he has been shot he has taken bullets he has he has even he has he has had some dealings with the Eastern Orthodox Mafia in the church. And that's a very interesting thing in and of itself. He knows how bad the church is and he still, he still wanted to actually go towards God in, in this sort of way, the Eastern Orthodox way. But even so, his life even today is marked by fear of, of that eternal punishment, you know? And I talked to him about my universalist leanings and that uh, I, I told him that I don't fear death because if anything, it would probably, I mean, I would meet God face to face, you know? So it would be a better deal for me in that sort of way. Like Paul says that death is actually gain. And I talked to him about that. And the one, the one thing that he said that struck a chord with me is that he he doesn't even have the eyes to to look up at God and and see Him face to face. He he only has the courage to basically stare at His feet, even in front of God. And this is the kind of trauma that sin afflicts. And if God isn't there to fix it, I don't know how you can fix it on your own. So so when I hear the stories of such people. I, I don't envy them. I don't think, well, you know, I want to be filthy rich and enjoy the pleasures of life because those are fleeting and those are, well, let's say it like this. In our modern lives are so comfortable that we are basically richer than the richest person in the Middle Ages. 
if we look at our comfort. There, there aren't many more things that we would want out of this world. Like maybe some, some diseases worry us, but there are not many things left that we need to fix, so to speak. I mean, materially speaking. And things are getting better and better. And we are richer than, like I said, than people in the Middle Ages, even the, the kings. We have hot water running whenever we please. We have TV to entertain us. We have more food than we can ever consume. We actually throw away food, something that would be unheard of. We have so many comforts and we still want more. Why? Because we get used to being comfortable. We get used to experiencing life, but that's not actually experiencing life. That's being a slave to your passions. So sin is in that sense, you being a slave to something that is in its essence, death. Because yeah. you can either McDonald's. be a slave. Yeah, you well, can either be a slave. Donald talking life. about a man is in bondage to whatever he holds on to that is that is of less value than himself or something like that. Yeah. Well, even even Martin Luther said that, like, the, in his the bondage of the will. That, that's basically what what he's talking about. Because uh, I think this is a quote by Schopenhauer. Like he said that. A man can do what he wills, but he cannot will what he wills. I don't know. I think it was Schopenhauer. Maybe it was somebody else. Anyway, in our most, well, in our inner being, I think we are always drawn towards the good, towards like away from pain and closer to pleasure. Although I think the word pleasure isn't, doesn't really do justice to the concept of God and the good. But we are always oriented towards that. So in, in a given sense, we are not free. You know, we are not ultimately free to just, we are not ultimately free to choose death if we completely understand that it is death. But we always choose this, which seems like, li seems like life to us. So we overindulge ourselves, we overeat, we go into different kinds of excesses because we think they would bring us life. They would bring us pleasure, which we associate with life. We associate it with the good. But the more we do this, the more we do this, the more we do this, we end up being deprived of any kind of chance to really experience the good. Because I don't know if, if you know this term, anhedonia, which actually means yeah, that you, you experience so much stimulation that, that you get to a place where you can no longer be stimulated. And that is very it's a bad feeling and i i've seen it firsthand what it does to people because it it happens with uh drug addicts it happens with food addicts with sex addicts and it is it, it is basically its own sort of hell because then no not only do you not have anything to pursue in terms of pleasure anymore but everything, literally everything, is pain from then on. And you don't have an es escape route. At least that, that's how it seems to you. It always seems endless because the, the feeling of pleasure just disappears. And this, this is what 
ultimately happens when you continue to pick sin instead of aligning yourself with the good. And this is not an enviable position to be in. And although people who are in some sort of need, let's say they have kids that they have to feed and they have a car that constantly breaks down and a lot of money go there. I understand when they say that they want to see some people punished because they're criminals. But then I think about myself and when I realize my own sin, when I, when I realize how sinful I am, and when I look at the criminal who is just, well, he's pursuing the base pleasures of life, let's say that. I, I feel this, I feel for myself that my sin is greater than his, because my sin is pride. My sin is the sins of the right hand, so to speak, because I see myself as holier, but that is ultimately worse for myself because then I don't pay attention to my, to, to the little mistakes that I do, to the little missteps, to the little, to the, to the small corruption of my soul, which then spreads and it corrupts other things around me. It corrupts my relationships. It corrupts different aspects of my life. And, and so what if I'm not a criminal? So what if I don't pursue sexual gratification? So what if I don't, overindulge myself with food and I'm not a glutton. So what if I'm prideful? And if all my relationships end up just people who I manipulate through my great uh, statures, let's say that, through who I am, through who, through who I pretend to be. Because really pride is you pretending to be something more than you really are. And, and you actually believe in your own lies about that. And, in, and when I have witnessed my own pride, when, when I have witnessed my own sin, when I have witnessed how my life has gone through the sins of the right hand, through the sins higher of the hierarchy, I realized that all the other kind of sins that other people commit, they don't really matter to me all that much. I don't, I don't I'm saying this, I don't even want to see them punished. Like, I don't want them to pay for their sins through some kind of punishment because ultimately it doesn't matter for me, you know? And if I don't care about their punishment in terms of they having to pay for something they, that they've done, I don't see how God would want to, to have them pay for that kind of punishment. You know, I'm not more merciful than God. I'm, the, excuse me, I don't see how God would want them to pay for their sin in that sort of transactional manner you know you've stolen a billion dollars so you have to end your punishment for a billion dollars you know i don't see how god would have any use for that in fact what i think ends up happening through you being sinful and committing all those kind of sins is that imagine it like a clock that needs to be set straight you know like a mechanical clock that has all these mechanisms running and if if a gear pops out it really takes a lot of effort and patience and uh, you have to be very precise because it's a very precise mechanism imagine that's your whole being so the more you sin the more you damage the gears 
and the more yeah. fixing they need and the more and precise can, it needs to be. And you can damage yourself to such an extent that um, absent the healing and rehabilitative powers of, of forgiveness from your victims, you would be destroyed by, by, by just your own empathic experience of the misery that you inflicted on other people. You cannot be rehabilitated. Actually, if you, if you just had to live with the consequences of your sin and never be forgiven, you would just, the, the psychological, it would tear you apart. And that's why McDonald says not forgiving is worse than murder. Yeah. And that's why God insists on it. Yes. And, and here is a very interesting thing. Again, a little bit of trivia. Here in Bulgaria, we have had at least three or four different mafia groups. And the, the most interesting thing about those, they always run some sort of charity. Like people would say, yes, those might be criminals, but at least they took care of us, you know? And many criminals prided themselves on the fact that at least they took care of some people in need. So like they, they saw themselves as Robin Hood, you know? And I think that's interesting because your mind, even when you're a criminal, you still have to justify yourself. You still have to make yourself at least some sort, if not a hero, then at least a little bit of an anti-hero so that you're not the villain. You may not be really the, the great hero everybody wants, but well, you're not that bad. You're not the villain. So you may still, you might still, you might murder some folks, but at least you're taking care of other people. And it's, I think it's just your own conscious trying to make up for all the things that you do. So some people, they go all the way to complete corruption, so to speak, although it's not in an absolute sense, but just like you said, they go into the place where they can't really live with themselves if they realize just the depths of the, the pain they have caused. I think that annihilationism, conditional immortality, would be true if God did not demand forgiveness um, uh, to to uh, you know to wrongdoers. I think that that their 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 sin would destroy them if God did not make forgiveness a requirement. Yeah, that's I did, I haven't thought about that. I haven't really thought about that, but I think though. Um, I think that, in a sense, the forgiveness that that we need to to show, to display, is in a in some weird sense. It's even. I think it's it's the hardest to forgive yourself when you realize your own misconducts you know when, when you realize just how difficult it is to just how, how painful the things you've done are to other people i think that's it's the hardest to forgive yourself then and i think in some weird sense if you don't really forgive others how much more wouldn't you be able to forgive yourself and then how can you live in a heaven where you have people whose punishment you're so eager to see because you can't really forgive them. How, what, what does that actually say about you being able to forgive yourself? 
And what does this say about you actually grasping the depths of your own sin? Because if you really understand your own sin, I don't really, I don't think it would matter much the sin of other people, at least for most other people. Like I'm not talking about Hitler or Stalin or Mao or people who have really caused the tremendous amount of suffering. But everyday normal people, I think if they realize just how much pain they've caused, it would be much more difficult for them to forgive themselves than it would be to forgive anybody else. And this is the this is the weird thing that if we if we fail to notice not, not only that God wants us to forgive others, not only that he demands it and commands us, I think that is that is the path to actually being able to forgive ourselves and to actually um, allowing ourselves to be joined to God. Because we are the ones who stand in our own way when we approach God. We are the ones who are actually, we are, the, we are our own roadblock, so to speak. The, the devil might try to tempt us and to make us veer off the path, but ultimately it comes down to our own responsibility. And when we realize that we actually can't do anything to fix it, we really can't because it's gone. We've already, you can't take back the pain that you've caused. That's where Christ comes in and that's where his sacrifice comes in, how it ties everything together. And then you realize um, then you realize how every single life is, is valuable because you realize how much pain you have caused. You, you have realized the depths of your own sin and you realize that whatever another person has done, it's probably not as bad as you because it's from your own conception. You only have your own phenomenological experience, you know? So, from your own conception, you don't really care about the sin of other people because you cannot bear the guilt of your own sin if somebody doesn't take it away, if God doesn't come and say, you know, it's all right. It's all right. You, you have to accept what you have done. You have to realize how much damage you have caused and how much pain you have caused. And you have to accept that. You, you don't forget it. I don't think we, we will forget the pain that we have caused. I think it will be ultimately be redeemed. I don't think we will forget it because it's it brings its own sort of a lesson. And when you see this, when you realize that you can't take it away, you can't erase it, you can't you can't unbreak a vase. Only God can do this. I think it is then when you realize that universalism is kind of, at least in my opinion, inevitable. Not because I want it to be true, but because if God can forgive me and if God can be merciful towards me, how much more can he be merciful towards other people? And if he can open my eyes, why wouldn't he open the eyes of other people? And if opening my eyes is what allows me to forgive others first before I forgive my own sins, why wouldn't he do this for other people? That's at least that's how how I conceptualize it. That's 
that's why I I said that when you take the analytical, when you when you take the experiential, and you try to marry those, you have to put yourself in front of everybody else in terms of responsibility. Because you may demand that others pay for their sins, but you can't do this before you face your own sin. You can't do this because then you wouldn't be, it wouldn't be fair and you wouldn't be doing this from a place of, um, of justice, you know? Like if I, am, if I am severely overweight and if I am gluttonous, I can't really judge a person for being gluttonous because I'm doing the same thing. It wouldn't be fair in any sort of way. So first you have to judge yourself. First you have to see your own sin and then you have the right, the right to judge others. But then you realize there isn't, well, there isn't a degree to sin. Like you either run away from life, which is God, or you, you or you run towards life. So any kind of category that you we try to put sin in, it's just sin. Small, big, it really doesn't matter. It kills you all the same. It might take a different route, but ultimately it corrupts you little by little. One of, one of my favorite confusing Jesus stories that speaks pretty directly to what you're talking about is in Luke. And I think it's called the parable of the unjust steward, um, who I guess he's, he's always been cheating his master. And at, at some point it comes to the master's attention that the steward really owes him some very large amount of money. Um, and the steward, um, his response to this is to go to the master's debtors. Um, it, uh, and he's normally the middleman between the debtor and the master. And he goes to the debtor and he goes to debtor A and he says, okay, your ledger says that you owe this much to the master. Well, let's slash that in half and just keep it between you and me. And then he goes to the next, the next debtor and, and does the same thing with a different you know, quantity or item that, that debtor B owes. And then um, that, this comes to the master's attention too. And the master says, you're very wise. He seems to commend uh, the, the, the steward for his, for his unethical action. But you know, like what I, how, I, how I conceive it is that you know, in some sense, you know, all, all sin is against God. And that you know, when you, if you forgive others, you are forgiving them. Um, of a sin against you, but which is also ultimately against God. When you see the amount that you owe to God, you realize you can never repay it. Just like the unjust steward says, I'm, I'm too old uh, to, to work and I'm too proud to bathe. So I have to do something else. You know, he realized he can never repay to the master what, what he owes the master. And um, so his response is, is rather than insist, you know, it, rather than insist that others pay their debts, he, you know, that, that are owed to the master, but proximately through him, he says he forgives others their debts, you know, and that, and, and so that's, that's really my interpretation of um, the, that, that weird story. Um, 
uh, uh, but but um, I I love that because I love the, the the stuff in there that is kind of really initially confusing and doesn't doesn't make sense. So that that one always stays with me. I mean, I think even that interpretation it has some problems, maybe some ways that the analogy doesn't exactly work. But but nonetheless, you know, I, I see that as 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 a pretty good interpretation and kind of speaking to what you were talking about. Yeah, and you have Jesus saying that um, you you should use your I'm translating from Bulgarian, but you should use your unlawfully gained wealth to gain friends, you know, something like that. I think I forgot where he said that, but it's basically you you can use the things that you have acquired through sinful actions to, to in some way, shape, or form redeem your sinful actions, you know, like to at least do the right stuff afterwards. And at least that's how I see it. That's how I interpret it, that your deeds, your sin is relational towards God. Like you have stolen from somebody, but ultimately you have transgressed against God. But then your redemption lies in fixing relationships or establishing new, better relationships. You know, I think I think that ultimately we are, like David Bentley Hart says, we are relational beings. We are not unique in the sense that we have an essence that is incorruptible. And uh, we have this unique character that is, for me, for example, Athanasius, this unique character. No, we, we are relational beings. We are an amalgamation of every little strand of, of relation we have towards somebody else. And we take this and, and we tie it together and we display this. And when we sin, because sin, sin is always, at least in my mind, some sort of a relational transgression. It's not just you breaking some sort of a rule. Even if you steal something that doesn't, doesn't, hurt, doesn't really hurt anyone, like for example, if I steal uh, one dollar from a billionaire, it probably wouldn't, he probably wouldn't care, but it still hurts the relationship that I have with this person. Even if he doesn't find out, because I know it, because now I know that I have betrayed him. And, and now, since I am a relational being, I have hurt a part of myself. I have destroyed at least a little bit of my personality. And, and same, along the same veins, I have hurt my relationship with God. And if I image God, that means that I have stained the image now. So every kind of sin that, that I do, I basically, I destroy myself if we see it that way. I cut off the, the, the relation I have with somebody else and also towards God. Because that's, at least that's how I conceptualize my own being. That's my own, Let, let's say it like this. I believe that ultimately we all as people are, are going to be one. We are going to be connected. We are going to share. Let's say we, we will have all our experience will be 
pooled together and we will have access to that pool. But we are also unique in the sense that we have this unique being. Like, at least that's how I conceptualize it. Like, God is yeah. at the same time there's, three there's and one. Yeah. Multiplicity within unity, and you have yes, a yes, distinct exactly. or differentiated exactly. identity, without which there would just be one kind of featureless monism. Um, yes. But but with with the different with the integration of differentiated parts, you have a rich um, sort of inner um, relationality. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I I'm saying this because if we are all going to be together, and if we are all relational beings that means that even if one of us is taken away the others suffer because now that relation that we have that tie is severed that means our our own conception is different now we are different a different being so to speak so we need everything to be tied together in order for it to be truly itself for it to be truly ourselves we need every person every being yeah. every creature. I, I love Oh, I love so much what David Bentley Hart says about this, how he could be saved apart from his brothers, but then the resulting sort of um, anonymous essence that would be saved just wouldn't be him. It wouldn't be, yes. it wouldn't be who he is. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's exactly how I conceptualize it. Even before I read Hart, that's how I considered it, because it only made sense. And I think it is even phenomenologically true, because when, when, why is it sad when a person dies, even if they are believers, a believer and we believe they will be in heaven and in a better place, why are we still sad? Because a part of us is gone and we are now a different person and we will no longer be that same person that we were from now on until we get to the fullness of being yes. one day. I mean, I mean, for a parent, it's horrific to even try to imagine this. But, you know, what I think about this is like, because I was at a really low place one time. And I was just thinking like, God, would it really matter if, if, if I were gone? Because surely everything in you can exist without me. And then a thought came into my mind that was like, well, just you try existing without your child. And as like, well, yeah, technically I can continue to exist, but not as myself. Actually, I would I would die, and and so there there, there was a beautiful line from um, uh, the um, the video on the Love Unrelenting channel about the primitive Baptist Universalist, where where the the this kind of down home Southern preacher man said, um, "God is the Father of all. If he would lose anything, a part of himself, he'd be losing himself." And that you know, I felt like I just had to comment like there is no in my mind truer theology than this because this is exactly the love of the father yes because the that that's the mystery of the trinity right because the relationship itself is important it's not arbitrary it is important so if we image that relationship if god is the pattern of all patterns and we, we pattern him that would mean that we are built in the same way, that we are all in that sort of, of a relation, perhaps to a lesser degree. But again, we display him, like we image him. And in the end, uh, that's 
that's what actually needs fixing when we talk about sin and and Christ dying on the cross and the incarnation redeeming the entire cosmos and the creation that like um what isn't how how was the quote going uh what christ hasn't embodied hasn't been redeemed or something like that um well i think that's that's the meaning behind it that what actually needs fixing is the relationships that we have severed between us all because that's that's what sin ultimately disrupts our vertical relation towards god and our horizontal relation towards others and what actually needs redemption and needs fixing is this because our our being our nature whatever you you say it is it is nothing more than this relationship between us and everybody else and god like the trinity is nothing more and nothing less than the relationship between all the members of the trinity you know because if it is more than the relationship then it means that there is there is something more than the trinity there is something more than itself so to speak but if it's less than the relationship that means that the relationship between the trinity is somehow more than the entire trinity you know I, I, I don't know if I explain it correctly, but I have it in my mind that it's difficult to explain, but but it's it's very integrally connected with Jesus saying yeah. that you know, the two commandments are you love uh, God with all your heart, soul and mind and your neighbor as yourself. Um, and, you know, well, for me, I'm a kind of a panentheist and I would see each of I us too, as, yeah. as part of part of the body of Christ, actually, everyone and every creature um, is, is irreplaceably precious to God in that individual unique way. That a, that a father has to each of his children, um, and then I would say a creator has to, the creator has to each of his creatures, and um, that 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 we're all, if you will, elect from before the foundation of the world and the body of Christ, and then that way we are participants in the Trinity. Um, yes. And but what we do is we we recognize our um, we're baptized and we 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 recognize our role as as sons and daughters and children. And creatures of, of god yes I, I agree with that uh, with that i i too am a panentheist and uh, i think that's the only well at least to my mind that's the only philosophy that makes sense of how the universe can exist within god because i don't i can't i i just can't imagine it being outside of god because that would make no sense and I don't really think of it as being entirely God, like so I'm not a pantheist in that sense, but that God is at the same time separate from the universe, but the universe con- is contained within God. There is this um, song by George Garros. I don't know if you know this singer. Uh, and it, it's called Enclosed by You. And there he says, one of the lyrics goes, um, how can I enclose you, like within my heart, you who enclose everything? And I think that's the mystery of, of you being. Yes, you taking, being in God and God yeah, being in you. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. That's, yeah. I think that's the whole mystery of, even of the incarnation, because the incarnation encompasses the entire universe within itself, but then 
is contained within the universe. There is some very beautiful stuff by Chris Langan, the, the sort of obscure American autodidact and philosopher about the myriology or the part whole uh, uh, science of um, ultimate reality. And because few of us have really, really gotten clear on what we mean by universe. On one level, if what we mean by it is everything physical, God is not that, I would agree. God is not the universe where universe is understood to be everything physical. However, if we understand the universe as everything real, it becomes trickier to characterize God's relationship with the set of everything real. Um, is he the entire set um, or is he also a member? Theoretically, just naively, um, and I know these are the sort of self-referential paradoxes on which Russell's um, Principia Mathematica foundered. Um, but if if it's a if it's a re if the set of all real things is itself real, then it's a member of itself. Yeah. And and if, if then it's so God understood as you know like the set of all real things, and with a reflexive kind of um, logical language, which consciousness is, I would argue you can do that. And again, I'm, that's that's my influence from Langen showing. Um, God is both set and member. He's immanent and transcendent. Yeah. Um, and but each it also means in in a, in a in a in a tricky way that each part is in the image of the whole indelibly, um, and and that each each part is also in its way um, of like a fractal representation, like holographically of, of the entire whole, um, and that's inescapable when you talk about God as ultimate reality because he's not he's not um, he's not it's not creation is here in God's out over here like as if there's some yeah yeah understood to be some mutual containing medium that is bigger than god mm -hmm. um and and um uh yeah and, and you can talk about god as you know he, like he's the ground of being but it, and and only that which i kind of disagree with because i think that the trinity means he's he's more than that um um but but you know if you say god is just the ground of being then it's it's kind of like well it seems like that's inside the it's it the it seems like being as such is within the creation in some sense it's within the things that that have being um it's not spatially outside of space time <laughs> you know it's like it's beyond space and time well what, it, beyond in what sense in a spatial sense because it's it's not spatially outside yeah, of space yeah. time uh, you know, it, 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 it doesn't seem to be if we make God the ground of being that we have any intelligible sense in which God is way out here and separate from his creation. It's just you have to have panentheism in, in my view. I didn't explain yeah. it terribly well, but but, you know, I'm, I'm definitely led uh, to similar conclusions, um, you know, yeah. based on my intuitions. Well, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you used to be like... Uh, a Hindu, right? Like uh, that religion. My name is Kaliya Krishna uh, Rive, um, uh, and uh, but I just simplify it, Cal Rivet. Uh, but but really, you know, I grew up and still, I'm you know, in my mind or my heart of hearts, I am. I I know my name as Kaliya Rive, um, um, but I was raised Hare Krishna, um, which is a kind of Hinduism which is not um, closed off to people who are not um, ethnically Hindu. So, you know, obviously, I, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not ethnically Hindu, um, but my, my, my parents converted to a religion which began uh, in, in India. 
Um, and so it's a form of Hinduism, albeit a curious kind of monotheistic or at least monolatrous. Um, it's like Dvaita Vedanta, right? It is very much like that. And in fact, the panentheism that I conceive of, conceive of is not too different as far as I can make out from the Vishishtadvaita or qualified non-dualism of Ramanuja, which had an important kind of you know, influence in, in, in still like the Hare Krishna or Gaudiya Vaishnav metaphysics. Um, although I would say the relationship is fairly accidental since at the time that I was a Hare Krishna, I was not thinking about I was not I was not aware of that that metaphysical picture and probably couldn't have conceived of it. Yeah, it's I think it's similar to how I have arrived at certain conclusions, which later turned out to be like similar to let's say some church fathers. It's it's similar. Like I, I wouldn't have conceptualized it in certain way, but in such a way, but um, through my reasoning with time I arrived at pretty much similar conclusions. Um, the, the interesting thing about, about Hinduism, because at some point I was choosing between either Hinduism or Christianity. Like I figured these would be the religions that would make the most sense out of the universe, so to speak. But one of the interesting thing is, things is that the more I learned about ancient Christianity and um, listen to people like David Bentley Hart and even uh, Jonathan Peugeot, <laughs> both of them have said that Christianity is much more similar to the non-dualistic sort of, uh, of Hinduism than it is to the Dvaita Vedanta, which is dualistic. Because at least from the Eastern Orthodox perspective, you are you are bound to conceptualize God in the sort of way that you are not really divorced from him. You're not really a separate creation. You're not a separate being. You're a partaker of God. Even if you are a non-believer, ultimately, and even if you believe in internal conscious torment, ultimately, heaven and hell are the same place, the same place in Eastern Orthodox theology. They are ultimately the love of God. And the love of God for those who hate God is painful. And for those who love God is bliss. Because like, if you hate somebody, like, like what we read in the Bible, if you do good to your enemies, you're like putting coal, coals over their head or pouring coals over their head. I think that was the expression. You might, you may correct me if, if you, but do, do you get what I'm saying? Like, Doing good yeah. is actually, uh, actually the doing good by, by doing good making, to your enemies. You're heaping burning coals above their head. Yes, yes, exactly. That, that's that's the thing. So, ex, actually, kill them with kindness, as as they say in the south. Yes, and in fact, your goodness towards them to them is painful. So, so God's love towards those who do not give their life over to God is painful. And it's, it's the same sort of, I mean, if, if I had to subscribe to eternal conscious torment, that would be the kind of vision I would have of it. That heaven would be the same place. It's just, you wouldn't experience it as heaven because you, you didn't want that out of heaven. You know, that's why, that's why I say, uh, when people when people consider 
that living a Christian life is going to bring them some sort of a great reward in heaven, you know, like golden palaces and whatnot. We have this in Bulgaria. There is um, a Pentecostal magazine, which loves to kind of portray heaven in in certain way. This person had a vision of heaven and this person had golden cars there and whatnot. Yeah, weird stuff. But they love to do this. Like they all, they love to paint heaven in this very materialistic sort of way. Like gold is the most precious metal even in heaven, you know. And and I I find it funny that people don't realize that just a sin is its own punishment. Obeying God's commands is its own reward, and we, it wouldn't be different in heaven. In heaven, we would continue to do what God wants from us, to love one another, to share our, each other's burdens, although it they, they wouldn't be burdens. But that's that's what we are trying to do here on earth. That's we, we, are, we are actually learning how to do that. We are trying to, to shape ourselves to be the kind of people who would delight in the happiness of other people. Because that's very hard to do, right? That's the hardest thing. You can empathize with somebody's pain, but it's really hard to empathize with somebody's happiness. That's the the, the toughest thing to do. Um, there is this saying, everybody is happy for you and for your own success until you're more, more successful than they are. At that point, they're no longer happy for your success. Eh? And that's that's the kind of thing that you have to learn here. At least that's how I envision it. And even when you die, the hell that you go through is actually discarding every egoism, every every shred of selfishness that you have, every stumbling block towards you accepting that you are not the center of the universe and you are not you're the universe's greatest being. Like you're not the God. You were talking with Wayne about near-death experiences and I have see when you talked about that I was like okay there's far too much here than I could ever go into but but you know like I've I've poured over so many accounts um and and interviews of near-death experiences um it's it's a it's an area of particular fascination to me um I'm a little bit um of a I don't know a Wittgensteinian or a Taoist in the sense that I think that Predicates are really on their complements. And in order to understand right, there has to be such a thing as not right. Um, and and uh, for me, incidentally, the shades into the problem of evil. It's kind of like if God created a world that was so astroturf and baby proof and no one could even stub their toe, what meaning could there be in this world? Not to say that God allows evil as a means to the end of some greater good, because it's not even, if you speak of good, there is also evil immediately by logical implication. Um, but anyway, um, these near-death experiences, they talk about heaven as a place in which suffering is impossible and negative experiences and emotion are impossible and it makes me wonder well you know if you can have if if in theory you can have a place um that is like 
that is comprised only of positive things and positive experiences? What need is there for this life? It seems to make a mockery of the suffering that we undergo here. If it's within God's power to create, you know, uh, from the get-go, something that is, is, is just only good, why on earth hasn't that happened? And what I've come to think is that what they're describing, heaven. Okay, so I'm now going to sound like a Sadducee that denies the resurrection, but I promise, just listen. When I say heaven isn't like real or heaven's not a place, I'm not saying there is no afterlife. There is an afterlife. But heaven is not a place that you can be in eternally where there's, there's, there's only positive experiences. I'd say that it's a state of mind that's possible within consciousness, just as hell is a state of mind that's possible within consciousness. Consciousness continues. The afterlife is consciousness, but you know it is fundamentally both these things at once in some sense, and at least both of them potentially, and, and also in some sense, both of them at once. That's kind of what, what consciousness is. I think when people die in those near-death experiences, they're experiencing a state that is possible, but... Um, I, I, you know, I'm kind of with William Blake in the sense that he, he thought that there would be sort of divine sorrow um, in, in heaven. Um, uh, and that, but like on some level that, that even that experience of suffering on a first order level, it's, it's painful or negative, but on a second order level, one says yes to it. It's like one still wishes, um, one still wishes for it to, 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 to be. Um, uh, one doesn't, one wouldn't want to deny it or, or wish it out of existence because it's necessary in the fabric um, of, of, of the whole uh, and the fabric of, of, of heaven. Um, so, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it is the same thing, but in some sense, our attitude has changed. But also in some sense, events have changed too and become redeemed. So, you know, and been restored. So Well, I have two notes here. The first is that um, this might as well be what the, the tree of knowledge of the good and evil held within itself, that the knowledge was actually this, that evil is necessary, so to speak. Like, if there is good, evil is not good. Like, the, the existence of it is inevitable. And I think that's that was the kind of truth that Adam and Eve weren't ready for. Because um, here comes my second remark. I, I don't think, I don't remember who said that. It was one of the church fathers. I don't, I don't remember already. Uh, but it was something like, we are in the state, like, like creation is still ongoing. Like we, the whole universe is still being created. Like the six days of creation aren't actually finished. They're just like the, the, the first and second chapter of Genesis actually describes the entire creation of the universe which, within which we now live. Like we, we live within, within those six days of creation, so to speak. So God is still creating the universe. And within that creation, there is the necessity for evil. You know, but when it's finally, ultimately, everything is complete, evil will no longer be there. But it, like in the mind of God, the creation is not complete because God doesn't see time in the same way. But we experience it in a linear fashion. So what 
what evil is to us right now, it is painful, but just like when you wake up after a dream, when I, when I wake up after a bad dream, I don't think, well, I wish I didn't have that dream. Like, I, I wish I never experienced that dream ever. I just didn't think much of it, you know? Like, I was, it, it, it might have even been interesting to me. And it might, I might actually enjoy it because it now makes for a good story that I can tell. You know, I had the dream, it was very weird and all these kind of things, things happened there. So in a sense, and Jonathan Peugeot talks about this a lot, there is this difficult idea to accept that evil is um, in some sense, good is impossible without evil. There is this, uh, like not that you can't have good without having evil, it's that in order for good to even be as good as it is, there needs to be evil. And it's very difficult to... Peugeot says that? Yeah. I'm interested. Uh, that, that, that's interesting to me. Kind of how, what I would really take care to emphasize is that suffering is not in itself good and suffering is not God's, what, immediate end or not an end in itself as far as God is concerned. We are not here to suffer. We are not here to just be purged and cleansed by suffering. That's not fundamentally why we're here. Yeah, we're here to learn, which involves ups and downs and highs and lows. We're, so I would, I would just really emphasize that we're here to learn, not, not just to suffer. Not, I'm not saying suffering is good. Yeah, yeah, I'm not saying that either. And, and Peugeot isn't saying that either. He's saying that it's, it's difficult to explain. He, he even finds... Like, like he finds it difficult to explain too. I, I have it as a concept in my mind, but it's very hard to put to words that basically we're not here to suffer and suffering in and of itself isn't good. But the good that we have, suffering doesn't make it worse. It, it makes it better. Like it, it builds our soul to a higher degree than it would have been built without the suffering. So I, I dimly remember something from, from what Sherry, a, a friend of mine, told me uh, was in a George MacDonald novel. And it's just very roughly the scenario is something like this. The protagonist is in a situation where he's kind of receiving advice from a wise guide type figure. And the guide is giving the protagonist some advice. This is what you should do if you ever come into such and such situation. And the, the protagonist asks, and what if I don't take your advice? And the guide says, then some evil that is good for you will follow. And the protagonist says, well, that sounds like it, I, I should, you know, it sounds like it's actually not in my interest to take the advice. It sounds like I shouldn't. So what, what happens, you know, if, if um, you know, what would happen if I did take the advice? And, and the, the guide says, then some evil that is not good for you will not follow this is the curious logic of living yes. in truly the best of all possible worlds um and it's a very deep thing that i think about quite a bit uh these days um but for me again what i would really just say is like if good exists or if light exists then the darkness the absence of light also exists um otherwise we couldn't otherwise the good would not be intelligible or identifiable um, but you know, they, that's a hard saying who can hear it. 
you know, and I always thought I was at odds with classical theists, despite, you know, many of them being willing to say with Augustine that evil is a privatio boni, that evil is the absence of the good. Seems to me, if we say, though, that evil is the absence of the good, that, you know, we have some kind of corollary idea that, that you know, good is, you know, defined on its complement of evil. But, you know, you know, I know people would not always agree with that. That is fine. You know, I, you know, it's like everybody, like the doors of the sea. Have you ever read that book? No, no, I've, I've read parts of it. I didn't, I haven't read the whole. It's the very, very beautiful book. It's a book that I take very seriously. It's David Bentley Hart's The Odyssey, his, his approach to the problem of evil, but really, actually, his, his, his resolute refusal to offer a justification for evil. And I'm kind of there too, because I would say that evil is not the justification for good, because without evil, good could not exist. Good exists necessarily, and so does evil. Um, there is no question of either of them not existing as far as I'm concerned. So in that sense, I'm kind of on the same page, but, but what, 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 um, what uh, David Bentley Hart, but the, the, remember the good is eternally preferred by God. It's always growing and evil conversely is always exiting existence. Evil is incoherent, is that which doesn't tend to stick around. Um, so, you know, creation is always being purged of evil, but not in the form of the evil doers being um, consigned uh, to, you know, to the trash fire. Um, I would say the evil in evildoers is purged out of them. Evil is like a wave. It has no being. The molecules of which it is composed are always different ones. Evil takes hold of someone and then God makes it, you know, let, let that person go, so to speak. Um, uh, so, but, but, you know, that's, but still, like David Bentley Hart, The Doors of the Sea, David Bentley Hart is just saying there's no, there's no theodicy that I can offer that would do any kind of justice at all, that would mean anything to the grief of a parent whose children were swept away in the tsunami that, that hit Southeast Asia earlier in this century. I can't remember when. And, you know, on some level, that, that really is right. Yes, um, I agree. You know, like, how do you argue with that? Um, except, except to say, perhaps, like, like David Bentley Hart kind of then sort of halfway contradicts himself and says, if we look at the brothers Karamazov and um, uh, Ivan's um, sort of um, the problem that he presents to Alyosha, Ivan is the skeptic and, and Alyosha is devout. And Ivan pulls a story from the tabloids and says, look at this baby girl who was tortured to death by her own parents. Um, if you were the architect of all reality and you could construct any infinitely good and beautiful edifice that you chose, but you had to build it on the foundation of the suffering of that baby girl, could you do that? And Alyosha said, no. So, you know, this is what, it, there's no worse indictment of God than is, that is possible to conceive than that right there. Except, except, would it be better that she had never been? The tender mercy of the devil it says it would be better if she had never been. There's something very, very deep there. And what, what, what I say though, is that it, non-existence, it cannot really, strictly speaking, it can't be better or worse. Um, 
but but on another level, like on a first order level of predication, non-existence is neither high nor low, uh, light nor dark. But on a second order level, we can say something about it. Namely, the only limit we can place on it is the second order limit that on the first order level of predication, there are no limits. Okay, but but see, the thing is like to borrow again another phrase from David Bentley Hart and put it to another use, which he might not necessarily approve of, but is whatever is beyond good and evil. Yeah, on the first order level, it's beyond good and evil, supposedly, but on the second order level, that's simply to say that it's it's not good. Um, and so non-existence is not good. Um, it, it would not have been better had she not been. And I know people are going to say, well, look, Jesus himself said of Judas, it would be better if he had never been. One of the one of the best things I ever saw in sort of a YouTube apologetics video was just this guy in the audience asking the apologist, are we to understand from this that God's creation is very good, but it wasn't necessarily good for every creature in it, that technically the best creation for Judas would have been the one in which he had not been born. And then the speaker had to admit, the apologist had to say, well, that was hyperbole. I agree. Jesus used hyperbole. Um, um, and, and, and at any rate, it's incoherent to suppose that someone would be better off by not existing. It's kind of like dividing by zero. Yeah. Um, not, nonetheless, you know, Jesus is describing the intensity of you know, some punishment and we should take it. You know, he's trying to state it as strongly as it's possible to state it. It's how I interpret it. I could be wrong. Well, I, I can add something here that I've been through stuff in my life, which I wouldn't even say it was too painful or anything, deserving of depression, so to speak. But still, in such moments, I think to myself that I would much prefer if I was simply at least not living. I don't know about not existing, but not being alive. And I realized that by saying this, like preferring me not to be alive, I am kind of low-key judging God that he keeps me alive. And I think that Jesus is indeed using hyperbole when he talks about Judas not it, it be, being better for him, not existing, not being born. In exactly the same way that I think of myself not being alive. Like, well, also just listen. I always think about this. Imagine if God Himself said to a creature, "It would have been, it would have been better if if, if I hadn't created you." <laughs> God, yeah, God, God is actually kind of rebuking Himself. So, it's, yeah, and, it, it's like in Job when God talks about the folly of the ostrich. And she does all these stupid things because God yeah. did not. <laughs> Suddenly he's distancing, distancing himself from himself and speaking of himself yeah. in the third person, almost like he's embarrassed um, when normally he uses the first person. I got all that from, from our friend, Jesse, uh, by the way, he's the one who's very attuned to the book of Job and brings out all of its beautiful little yeah. paradox. <laughs> what, but yeah, basically I think that Jesus uses the, a, a similar sort of language just let, when I say I prefer to not be alive right now, it's the same thing when Jesus says it would have been better for him not to be born, to be born, right? It's the same kind of thing that my experience right now, at least the way I experience it, is worse than my life 
then the value of my life continuing. At least that's how I view it. So Jesus puts to words what others would see Judas as. Like if Judas has had to, if Judas had to judge his own fate, he would say that yes, it would have been better for me to not being born and not have to be the ultimate betrayer, right? To always be remembered as as that guy who betrayed God. So yes, I think that's uh, like hyperbole in a sense. But yeah, yeah, that's basically what I wanted to add to, towards that. I had something else on my mind about very difficult to talk about non-existence because you know because yeah. we always whenever we think about it as some end which is desirable in itself we always in so doing mischaracterize it fundamentally it's sleep it's cessation of sorrow truly it is not defined that is to say it is neither sleep nor not sleep and you cannot wrap your head around yeah, but yeah, every you, time you that you can. represent it as a desirable goal, it's there's actually some fundamentally performative contradiction that is happening there. And that I think we don't recognize that when we say truly it would be kinder to put this person out of their misery, let God be the judge. I that's how I kind of say. Um, but if you don't anyway. Uh, I just remember I've heard many atheists, and I know that this comes, I think even from the ancient Greeks. But I've heard many atheists say that they don't fear death because the state after death is just the same as the state after them being born. So like they don't they remember it being bad or anything. They don't, they don't have an experience of it. Like they didn't exist before being born. But to this, to this I say that I don't think you can even conceptualize what it is to live before being born or to, to even not exist, not exist before being born. In a sense, in a sense, you know, origins talked about the pre-existence of the soul. In a sense, I think that although I don't agree the soul is, has pre-existed your current life, I think there is this sense that your soul has been eternal from the very beginning. And I conceptualize it that we are just creatures whose conceptual frames are very limited in our physical reality right now. We experience everything linearly, like time is linear to us and physics have, like we experience physics on the macro level. We don't experience quantum physics, but the but quantum physics is the truth. Like, even the macro level actually obeys the laws of quantum physics, but it is displayed differently. We see the color red, but it doesn't really exist. The, it, the color red is a property of, it's how we interpret light with certain properties, right? I am That's tracking with you very much on this. See, like the thing is, I also agree that the soul is not pre-existing in some contradictory time before time. Um, but, you know, like, here's the, here's the thing. Um, you you don't have the experience of like not having existed and then coming into existence. You don't have the experience of going from one from that first state to the other state. You don't have the experience of having begun. Consciousness is beginningless to itself. From your okay. relative point of view, your existence is beginningless. Um, it's just that to another being, 
you do have a beginning, say one who is older than you. God is ultimate reality as I conceive him, and thus there is no other outside him who is who is even real. God is beginningless to himself, as all consciousness is, and there is no other to whom he has a beginning. Yeah. Um, but but ultimately, all we're, we're all in the image of God, and we all are like beginningless to ourselves. And not only that, but the experience of time. Sam Harris is a guy that I actually like. Oh no, he likes Sam Harris. Like, another discussion but 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 um sam harris talked about how like in his view the illusion of free will i don't think it's an illusion um in his view the illusion of free will is is like the illusoriness is itself an illusion because if you attend to your experience you'll see that you don't actually have like this experience of being a cause of suai and pre-existing yourself and, and it's more like you are th- you are, you know, just, you just are that, that thought and that impulse. But, but anyway, he talks about the illusion being an illusion. I think the illusion of time is kind of itself illusory because when you attend to the now, it's like the now is not eventless. It has events. It, 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 it has things like cause and effect. And it has that time-like dynamic and that causal grammar. And yet at the same time, it's very different from our ordinary discursive experience of linear time, which involves recollecting the past, but in pieces, not all at once. Time is time because it's not space. It's not here all at once. So we have a conscious of this great depth of other stuff that happened, which we can only recall piecewise and not all at once. Um, but, But when you're in the now and that's your only experience, you're not in that. You're in something else. And I think eternity is like that. And I think it's always um, like that. There are some uh, reflections I have on time. If I can lecture briefly with your permission, I'm going to go up to the top here. Just read some stuff I wrote. Uh, Time is an illusion. Seemingly everyone. Everyone seems to say that. Uh, The Hindus called the web of relationships linking all events Indra's net, illustrating rightly the primacy of relationships over Rilada paraphrasing Ian McGilchrist there. He thinks relationships have primacy over Rilata. Uh, then I quote in response, Lao that high and low depend on each other. From Lao I think we see that the truly relationship-oriented response to McGilchrist is that neither relationships nor Rilata have absolute primacy over each other. If you have a Relatum, there is a relationship. And if you have a relationship, there is a Relatum. Here's another quotation or a paraphrase from Ryan Mullins. Some people say time reduces to events and their interrelationships, but I think time has primacy over events. The reason I say that is when you ask the reductionists to define an event, they suddenly have to make reference to time. My response here would be that neither time nor events have absolute primacy over each other. Events must be defined with reference to time, but time likewise can only be defined with reference to events. And for me, as an idealist, I do believe that to be is to be perceived, that the ultimate reality in whom we live and move and have our being is a consciousness, and that as a consciousness containing events, it must always have a time-like grammar in which those events are linked. Here, I am not conceiving time as some external element in which God's mind happens to be suspended, but rather as the very activity of God's mind. And note that the time-like causal grammar of God's consciousness would bear description as a higher form of time than our humble space-time. So I'm not strictly equating those two either. Um, But those are the thoughts that I have on time. And God himself, like experiencing a time-like dynamic or eternal now or holy present. And I, 
Yeah, I also want to say, like, in regard to what you're saying about quantum, and I'm influenced again by Langan here. We have, like, at some level, it's like there's a display aspect of reality. And that, I think, is the 4D space-time manifold that kind of exists all at once. But then there's the quantum, which is, like, the real, like, driving dynamic. And so in some level, God is omniscient because the, the 4D space-time, like, you know, as per Einstein's relativity, sort of does exist all at once. The future and the past are kind of equally real. And yet the whole block is also updating along some higher, if you will, fifth dimension. And, and there's an undefined future into which it moves. So simultaneously, God knows everything that happens in the block, but it's like he himself is the block and he is also updating continually along a, uh, along the dimension of, if you like, God's time, where, you know, um, the future neither is X uh, nor is not X. Like there's that whole thing, open theism. Um, uh, Diodorus Cronus says, you know, it's true that either Athens, you know, the, the sea battle hasn't happened yet, but it's true now that either Athens has won or has lost. He thinks the future is fixed. But really, I'd say the future is as such, like the true future, like God's future is unfixed. Um, but um, so anyway, but, but see, the thing is, well, kind of the corollary of that is like, it's not like in this moment, um, you have to do whatever it is that God foresaw you doing at the beginning of creation. Um, you know, God saw it all. And at this moment, you have no freedom. You just have to do whatever it was he initially foresaw you doing. I don't think so. Um, I think that at this moment, it's like you're co-eternal with God in, in his holy present. And you have the same, you're the, the creative freedom that you have to do good or evil is the same that he had, has, will have, whatever, at the initial, or no, let's say had, at the beginning of creation. Your freedom is as unlimited and of the same kind. Well, not as unlimited, but it is fundamentally of the same kind as the creative freedom that God had in, let's say, at the beginning of creation. Because really all moments are like the beginning of creation. Um, yeah, this, yeah. I, I have a similar conception, I think. Um, the way I imagine it is that I don't think foreknowledge exists. It's weird to say, but I don't think, I don't think that God foreknows something. I think that he just knows everything altogether. Like every single moment, it's not like, he knows it God, 30 years ago, knew that today something would happen. God just knew what happens at every stage, like every stage. And not, God knew, knows, and will know what happens. The, I, I really can't explain it, but that's how I imagine it. Every, every deed that I do isn't set in stone because God just foresaw it. And now I have to uh, get along with the events that he foresaw. But... or how others put it, that I choose what to do. God foresees this, and now God foresees my choice, and now I have to follow through with my choice. I just think that the knowledge that God has of my being and future and past and present is simply like it exists in, in the same point, so to speak. That's, at least that's how I imagine it. And every choice that I make is free in the sense that it always happens at the same time, if you understand what I'm trying to say. Like, my, my choices are not, like, a choice that I would, I would have tomorrow is not something that God just 
God knows what the choice will be, what, what choice I will make, but it's not like God is foreseeing it. God is just there right now, so to speak. It's difficult to conceptualize. He's there noticing me what choice I'm making. And he is observing. Like if a tree falls in a forest, if there is nobody there to see it, did it really fall? Like it's it's the same, the same kind of uh it's the same thing, I think. It's not like God is right here, right now, and he is seeing yeah. in the future. God is in the future. God is here. God is at, at every moment. And he's just witnessing. So it's not like he's foreknowing. He's just knowing. God it's, knows immediately. God knows everything immediately, like as state, as the now. as in, in, Yes. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's how I understand it. Your consciousness is composed fundamentally of known things, known and defined points. Like there's a phrase from Quine that to be is to be the value of a bound variable. It's like, oh, he's citing the analytic philosophy again. It's so, so nauseating. Okay. I, I, I kind of agree. But, but like the point is like everything in your consciousness is defined. It's a defined parameter in some sense. Your consciousness is fundamentally like by definition composed of known things. It's like God, God is omniscient in the sense that, yeah, everything real, every real event, be it in our past or, or be it past or future from our point of view, it's all known to him immediately. It's not like, oh, yeah, the past, I remember that. No, it's like it's now to him. But yes, then the question yes. is, as it were, for God, what happens next? I think there is true gen generativity um, in, in heaven. I think new things come into being. Um, from I, the, from I, I do too. Yeah, I do too. You know, that's why I don't think that we're just souls that we pre-existed and then we eternally incarnate, do some dumb stuff and then, re, you know, reincarnate. Like, I don't think yeah. that's how it is. I, I'm with David Bentley Hart when he talks glowingly of like God raising um, creatures out of the utter ontological poverty of non-existence into his infinite divine life. Like, to me, that is so, so much classier and more elegant than that, like, really cheesy... I'm sorry if I'm offending the new age folks now, but like <laughs> the, the reincarnation stuff, you know, like that, that is just like on sheer aesthetic grounds. That is barred. <laughs> I think the one, the one thing that kind of um, drew me away from the whole concept of reincarnation is that it ultimately doesn't fix anything. That that's, it's it's like saying do more of the same stuff hoping that things will get fixed but it ultimately it, i don't see how it is a solution you know because the hindus like they see it, and the buddhists too like they have the conceptual the, the conception of moksha and of uh, nirvana but basically that conception is that each and every cycle you get better and better until you reach moksha right you get at least that's that's the conception that, that you have to reach moksha through your cycle of rebirth and rebirth isn't good in and of itself. If you, if you've been reborn, that means you didn't do your job, your past life. So the point is to not be reborn, but I figure that I don't see how you, this solves you. Your... Can I interrupt here with something yeah, yeah. that you might find Go hilarious? Ahead. I'm sorry. I was raised Hare Krishna. You know what we sang at birthdays? We literally did this. May you never take birth again. May you never <laughs> take birth again. That that's funny, yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, I just 
I just didn't see how just being reborn is fixing your life, your trajectory. I know, I understand the idea of karma and I understand how that is supposedly bound to work, but I still, practically speaking, that that brings with itself, well, the whole class system in India is kind of based on karma, right? That whole concept that, well, you did bad in your past life, so now you, you have to reap the rewards. So they kind of justify it. opposed to what Jesus said, and I love this, and this is the Taoist in Jesus almost, but really Jesus is deeper than the Tao because the Tao is love, or so I would suggest. Um, who sinned, rabbi, teacher guy, that this man should be born blind, him or his parents? Jesus is like, neither. It was just so that the glory of God could be manifest in his healing. You know, like, watch me right now. It's like, oh, man, that is so... That is so gangster, but like fundamentally, it is it is recognizing. I would say, um, you know, the way that you know, if you have good, you have evil. If you have light, you have dark. If you have high, you have low. But yeah. the good is eternally preferred by God, and the evil is always cycled out. But anyway, although uh, I've I recently had a discussion in some YouTube comments about a guy who is a Christian who believes in reincarnation as, as what hell is. So you're basically reincarnated into hell until you choose heaven. That's, that's the idea. So hell is just another cycle. Though he was an, an, an annihilationist. So his idea was that this creation isn't actually good. So whoever is left reincarnating at the end would just be annihilated and the, the new earth and heavens will be created, you know? That was his idea, but... Well, that's sort of what the re- annihilationists believe too, because it's like you're resurrected only to be judged and then killed again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um, but I apologize. I wish I had not even used the word gangster in connection with Jesus, even if it was in a fundamentally <laughs> positive way. I, that's still actually, as we would say in, in Hare Krishna world, rasa boss. It's like you're mixing the high with the low in an inappropriate way. And actually, I do repent of that. And I apologize. Um, uh, that shit was just a spontaneous thing. I don't, I don't always think through what I say. Um, but, but, um, yeah, no, it's crazy, dude. And there's, there are some Christians who believe in reincarnation. They think that when, when Jesus was pointing to, um, John the Baptist, he said, if you can believe it, this is Elijah. Oh, he's saying reincarnation. Just like when he said of Judas, it would be better that he hadn't been born. He was saying the best creation, the best universe for Judas would have been the one in which he hadn't been born. Uh, maybe just Jesus isn't always literal sometimes, but yeah. Um, uh, um, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you know, I, yeah. Atanas, I'm thinking this was one of the funnest conversations I've ever had. There, there are some chores I need to do today, um, but I, I would really love to have you on for a part two, part three, part four. Um, I would be glad uh, until you get sick of it because um, because <laughs> I knew it it was like playing pool it's like call the shot I'm gonna sink it you know and it like I, I knew that if I talked to you that you're, you're just like you're like my brother from Bulgaria or something um, <laughs> that, that we would just really we would really connect and kind of see in the same way and, and and but also like in a in a different way I loved the reflections that you had on like sin and um, it, there, were, there was so much that, of, of what you said. You know, I'm, I'm going to really enjoy listening back to this conversation. Well, 
hopefully it wasn't too meandering. No, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was, it was really good. It, and actually, we managed to hit a lot of the points that I wanted to comment on in your conversation with Wayne, but it would have been like, like what's the point? Because I have to be typing essays. Um, uh, which is why the spoken word, to echo something you said before the recording began, is superior um, to the written word because there's just a way that you can move so much faster with it. And I don't yes. know why that is. Um, but um, yeah, we did manage to hit a lot of those points, but I also really want to do a part two with you and, 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 and I so I would be glad, yeah. And, and, I, and the, I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah. I also had a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't usually have a lot of those I mean, conversations, so I really enjoy it. And yeah, I'm open to another one and another one. And maybe I would be on a regular occurrence, like a regular guest on your podcast. Well, I, I, really, I really hope so, too. No exaggeration. Stay on with me after this. I'm going to stop the recording.